Good morning. So good to be here with you. I was telling Dan earlier that uh, it's always, uh, it is always so bittersweet coming back here because uh, we, uh, you guys embody some of the Lewis family's best memories. And I know some of you are thinking, it's like, I don't even know who you are. I've never seen you. A lot has changed. Obviously, I was here with my family for about five years here in Cape Girardeau. But I was telling Dan, every time I, I come here, I'm just so caught up in y'all's worship here and just the, the spirit as he moves in y'all and, and, and makes offerings uh, to the Lord through worship. And I, I'm grateful uh, to be here with you. I, I work with Campus Outreach. Uh, my, uh, I was part of starting uh, Campus Outreach and even moving to Cape Girardeau to start it here years ago. I'll tell you a little bit about that. Uh, my family, I'll catch you up on them. Uh, my wife sends her love, Joanne. Uh, she is, uh, uh, we still have a seventh grader, so we still have things going on at home where she was unable to uh, attend this weekend. But Grant, my oldest, uh, who is part of Awana's here and you know, probably memorizes some of his first verses uh, here at this church, is uh, now playing football at the University of Wyoming. Out, out in the, you know, there's, there's as, as Laramie, which everywhere in, in Wyoming is kind of, uh, nowhere, and um, uh, he, uh, he's settling out there, doing well. My daughter, Sarah, is graduating uh, this spring, and she's headed off to TCU. She's got her a wonderful uh, academic scholarship there, or mom and dad wouldn't be sending her to TCU. So we're really, really grateful for the Lord's provision. Uh, Travis is in the seventh grade, and, uh, you know, we're just, you know, he's still pretty simple. He just started using deodorant and uh, partner's hair and, you know, all the, all the things that uh, seventh graders do and, and just shooting birds in the backyard with a BB gun and, and that kind of thing. So life is pretty simple. We are, uh, we are doing well. Let me just express to you how grateful I am. Uh, you know, again, I'll always love and appreciate and feel like it's such a privilege to be asked to come and share God's word with you. You guys are a big part of our family in my personal life, again, which I'll share with you a little bit here in just a minute, but even on behalf of all the campus outreach staff, I want to thank you for your generosity, your servant's heart, your mission's mind, your Christ-centered mindset. You, you, you'll only find out how much of an investment and how much of that fruit um, is part of your fruit when you get to heaven and they pull back the curtain and you're able to connect all the dots. Just on behalf of us all, I'm grateful for you. Thank you very much. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews <coughs> chapter 11. We're going to look uh, into the chapter of faith there and look at uh, a short passage uh, about Abraham. And we're going to talk about sustaining faith. Now, I don't know how many of you, I was traveling down to uh, Cape Girardeau last night uh, you guys have changed up your services a little bit. I'm thinking 10.30, so I'm just going to get up in the morning. I get online after kind of doing some seminars yesterday for our staff and that kind of thing. Realized, like, oh my goodness, it starts at 9 o'clock. So I jumped in the car, got a hotel room, and, uh, and, and, and here I am. But I was listening to the uh, Kentucky-Notre Dame game. Anybody watch that game last night? I mean, it was phenomenal on the radio. I can only imagine what it was like on television. Um, but it was just a reminder when you get to this point of the season as you watch March Madness that it's not just about your talent, it's about who can sustain their greatness all the way to the end. And Kentucky delivered last night. Notre Dame was a, a phenomenal team. 
I always enjoy the San Antonio Spurs. I'm kind of, the older I get and the older those guys get, I'm like, keep going, guys, keep going. As a matter of fact, Tim Duncan is so old, um, I think he played back with Moses and some of the patriarchs. Now, really and truly, he played with my younger brother. Uh, my younger brother played at NC State, and uh, he came in, and I look at my brother, it's like, man, what is, you, you know, Tim and, and you, you, you're kind of turned into a fat slob over the years, and Tim Duncan's still playing basketball. What is the, what is the deal? But uh, I'll always enjoy it because those guys aren't even on anybody's radar until it gets to the end of the season. They know how to finish, get in that top eight in, their, in the Western Conference, and, and they get into the playoffs, and they just do their thing. They're just a bunch of old men crutching around, but they know how to pass and work with each other, and, and it's amazing. There's a lot more to winning than just being good. It's a lot. has a lot to do with being able to sustain it. I remember several years ago, uh, as I get older, I find myself in these conversations uh, with my staff. You know, the staff just keep on staying the same age, somewhere in their 20s, and I just keep on getting older. And so when we have these staff get-togethers, you know, I was, uh, you know, for years, I'd be out there on the basketball court trying to show my stuff. I played college basketball. I wasn't really that great, but I'm good enough for these guys. And and that kind of thing. But the older I got, it's like, man, I've got to change up the game some with these guys because I'm not doing too well in the sports. I'm actually losing a lot of street crib with my staff. And so it's like, we're going to move this thing to the swimming pool uh, in the future because they don't know that, uh, you know, even though I only have a half a lung on one side, I've got this unbelievable ability in the swimming pool to hold my breath. I don't know why. My lung is expanded and all these kind of things. And so I took them to the pool and I just, uh, I just whipped them. I mean, everything was like we were doing all kinds of weird things. You know, we were, you know, who can hold their hands over their head and just tread water for the longest? I killed them at that. Who can swim the greatest distance underwater? I killed them at that. Uh, you know, none of, these, none of these exercises actually use your joints. That was the key. That was the key to victory for me. And, uh, but then the last part was the diving competition, which uh, we didn't have a diving board, so... All the genius staff guys said, we don't need a diving board. We'll just throw each other up, and, uh, and we'll measure each other. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll give each other grades on each other's dives, and so that's what we did. They threw me up last. I was already killing them. I was in the lead. Did a, uh, what I was thinking was going to be a double backflip. It was probably more like a half a flip, actually, but I thought it looked good. But here's the problem. Nobody moved. So when I come out of my tuck, I land right on somebody's uh, back, shoots my elbow out to the side. The, the crazy thing is we have it on video. You know, nothing ever goes now without being on video. I come out of the water, I'm just thinking I've shattered my elbow and, and I had broken it and, and dislocated it. And one of my staff, he was so helpful. He immediately saw it and he started gagging. He <laughs> And all I could think of was like, is my bone sticking out or, or, or what, what is the deal? And um, I ended up with a broken arm and dislocated arm and I remember just calling my wife and how horrible of a conversation this was I'm in the emergency room and uh, it's like you know honey what is that sound in the background and I, it was it was an x-ray machine going you know in the background and and she said uh, and I said well honey I you know I uh, I broke my arm and, and it's like you were you were hanging out with the staff weren't you you were trying to play sports with the guys this, you know and it's like, well, and at this point, I really wanted to lie. It's like, yeah, there's a kid who's drowning in the pool. I was up on the third floor of the hotel. I jumped down, broke my arm, but I still managed to save the guy. And, uh, but I couldn't do it. And I said, yes, that's what I was doing. And there was just 
blank. I was hoping for, oh, are you hurt? Or are you, you know, is it, you know, and, and 30 seconds later, she speaks. I'm just like, Brian, this is costing us entirely too much money. This is just impractical for you to continue doing this with your staff. So longevity is important. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. As you look at this passage, Hebrews chapter 11. Obviously, it's one of our favorite passages. This whole chapter is the hall of faith. You don't get into this unless you have a lot of faith. And Abraham takes up more space in this particular chapter than anyone else. Let's read the passage and and let's focus in on this particular part. There's more in here that it says about him. We're just going to look at verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as his inheritance, as an inheritance, Uh, And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's make a few observations about Abraham's faith here. Uh, first of all, Abraham's faith was, a, was manifested through his, his obedience. You see that right off the bat. It says that, that when he was called, he obeyed and went. He obeyed when he was called. And, and faith always has to be manifested in our obedience. We can't say we have faith and then turn around and be disobedient to the Lord. Not only that, Abraham's faith was, was manifested in sacrifice. Think about when you go back to the, to the original uh, calling and, and promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, which we're going to look at in a minute. You know, he had to leave his family. He left everything that was familiar to him. It's probably a lot like when Jesus uh, came to a couple of those disciples in Matthew 4. He says, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And what does it say after that? Immediately, they dropped their nets and followed him. Part of what was going on there is those nets are symbolic. Those nets mean something. Those nets are what were familiar with them. That was their vocation. It was, the, it was the family business. It's probably what gave them a lot of identity in this life. They were comfortable doing fishing. And so to drop those nets required a lot of faith to follow Jesus Christ. Here we see the same thing with Abraham. It also, a third thing that we see here is it took a lot of courage. Abraham's faith was a courageous courage. Look at what it says there. He says, he went out not knowing where he was going. Listen, that's the contingency for a lot of us in walking by faith is, God, I'm okay to walk by faith as long as you tell me where I'm going. And very seldom does he ever do that. Usually he just gives you enough light to step out into it, and you're going to have to trust God that he's going to give you more light as you go on. So so Abraham didn't know what he was going, but here's what I want to focus in on. So his faith was obedient, it was sacrificial, it was courageous, but also his faith was persistent. Look at verse 9 there. It says, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Or in another translation it says it like this, I like this one better. It says, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. So, Brian, why, why, did you, why would you say his faith was persistent? Look at what it says there. You, you would, you'd hardly even notice this. He was living in tents. There's a lot more to this idea 
of living in tents than just the fact that he was living in a tent. It gives us a lot of insight, I think, to answering this question that I've written out here on your outline. How do you live a life of sustained faith? It's one thing to have a good start in your faith, to make decisions of faith, but it's a whole different thing to live a life of faith being sustained by what? That's what we're going to look at here. And Abraham's life of living in tents, it makes no sense when you think about it. Abraham was a very wealthy man. It's not like he couldn't afford a house. And when you think about it, God had promised him this land. He's there. Wouldn't you think that, that with all his resources that he would buy prime property, get a, a, a beachfront house? Well, I guess he really wouldn't be able to get a beachfront house, but maybe a lakefront house or something like that. But he chooses to live his life in a tent. What's behind that? I think what's behind that is the secret to living a sustained life of faith. So how do you do that? I think we have three things here. Number one, God's internal assurance was enough for Abraham. You would think that God called to Abraham to leave his family and to go to a new land, that God would make it clear all along the ways through all kinds of visible confirmations. If he's going to ask so much of Abraham, go leave your family, go to a land that you don't even know where it is, that he would give them all kinds of visible confirmations all along the way. But he did not. When Abraham arrived, there were no welcoming committee by the, the Canaanites. There were no bands or choirs. There's no parade. The mayor didn't come out and give him to the city. Hey, God told us that you were coming. Welcome. We know we're, we're pagans, but we're really glad to see you here. There was no real estate agent waiting to show him all the choice houses. Instead, what he actually found was just the opposite. There were people in the land. Not only that, they were in the middle of a famine. This is supposed to be the promised land loaded with blessing. And yet he gets there and there's famine. Think about the trip. The whole journey probably felt like a disaster to him. Pharaoh tries to, to take his wife when he's in Egypt. Man, that was an awkward situation. His nephew Lot gets into all kinds of trouble and he's got to gather his clan and go out after Lot and, and save him. You can imagine at the time what his relatives were thinking. The scriptures make an issue out of the fact that he left his kindred. He left his kinsmen. The bottom line is they probably didn't understand. Are you crazy, Abraham? Man, here we have good medical care. Here your kids are in great schools. You've got a good business going on. Why in the world would you drop all of that and leave all the way over here. You can imagine what Abraham was thinking. He's probably replaying all those discussions in his mind. He's like, God, please, vindicate me. If you're going to ask me to do all this, at least do something visible to show that I was right and that I'm not absolutely crazy in my mind for what I'm doing. I look like an idiot. So here's the question I want to pose to you. What do you do when you're convinced that this is God's will and yet there seems to be very little external confirmation. You know, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all experienced trying to do God's will, being convinced of it, and yet externally things don't pan out like we expect. We, we march out 
doing what God wants us to do, and yet inevitably we construct expectations of how this thing is going to play out. When it doesn't happen that way, several things happen. One, temptation begins to enter in. Think about the temptations that was probably going on in his life that goes on in our life. Whenever we get ourselves in these situations, everybody else's circumstances look a lot better than our circumstances, do they not? Everybody else seems to be doing a lot better than our situation. We begin to throw a pity party and we feel sorry for ourselves. And you know what ends up happening in those situations? We begin to be self-absorbed. We begin to pull in. And, and then, for some of us control freaks, we end up, it's like, well, if God is not going to do it the way I had it planned in my mind, I'm going to manipulate my circumstances. I'm going to take control of my circumstances and make this happen. I'm going to help God out here. And so we begin to cut corners. We're tempted to do all sorts of things. But here's the, here's the thing that we're probably most tempted to do, is to just turn back, is to just quit to just hang up our shoes because the temptation is over a period of time. It's not so much the decision of faith. It's the grind of faith that gets us. And eventually we suddenly find ourselves with our faith dried up and we just don't have any energy to fight anymore. You know, when, when the Lewises, when my family came here years ago to plant campus out here to where we had already planted a couple of ministries but most most people here didn't really know what we were going through at that time we showed up here we didn't know anybody here uh, we were really excited we bought a we we bought a house um, and um, uh, but soon we found out about four months into it that that house was built on a terrible foundation and it began to sink and guess what it continued to sink for the next four five years as a matter of fact, um, um, for you know, we would fix one side of the house, and then the other side of the house would, would sink. We'd fix that side of the house, and this side of the house would sink. And then we'd fix all the side. There were no sides left, and guess what happened? The middle began to sink. And this lasted over five years. And all I could think about at times was like, God, I thought you wanted us here. This has just been one huge distraction. Every year for five years, We had to go back in and redo all the drywall in our house, repaint our house, change out the carpet, change out all the sidewalks, change out the driveway, everything. You know, Scott Horrell was actually one of the ones who tore out our basement. He was working for the company that was fixing us this time. All of these different things. In the meantime, another injury happens to Brian. I tear my Achilles playing basketball. It's a horrible injury. And, uh, and, and what most people didn't know is we had just been kicked off of campus. I've been doing campus ministry for years and years, and we just had our worst fatality. We went on a campus, and it wasn't soon, uh, it wasn't very long before we got kicked off of campus. And man, I'm just discouraged. So we're expanding up into Cape Girardeau, and, and to us, you have to, you have to think, this felt like the great Midwest to us. I'm from southern Alabama. And uh, this just felt way off. We couldn't find a church, and, and I'll never forget, I literally lamp, limped into Dan's office one day. I was both limping spiritually and emotionally, but also I was physically. I just had my ruptured Achilles put back together. And, and you guys have no idea the breadth of faith that you gave me in the midst of because you know what? Man, I was really feeling like I want to go back. I don't want to be here. And how? begin to take me out to lunch as he did so well and 
take me out to lunch every week. And that was really good for me. And I became, we became a part of this family. And you guys began to nurture us and encourage our faith. And you know what? I'm so glad you did. I think about these three testimonies. They just played out. Think about the fruitfulness that you invested in our staff. And we've multiplied out. And a lot of things have changed over the years. But it all goes back to some simple decisions when some folks really needed to be encouraged in their faith. People stepped in and encouraged their faith to keep on going. Well, Abraham, what was his secret? Well, verse 9, I think, tells us here. He was the heir of God's promises. He wasn't clinging to his external circumstances. What kept him going? It was God's promise. Let's look at the promise. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. You don't have to look there. I'll read it to you. But here it is. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What, what a promise. It's like, here's, here's the command. I want you to leave your family, and I want you to go to this promise. I'm not going to tell you exactly where you're going, but here's the promise. Abraham, I'm going to bless you beyond your imagination. And I'm going to bless you so much that in you and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Now, this is, he's not just talking about his physical posterity here. We know that ultimately, this, this culminates in Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the nations here. That Abraham, through you, you have no idea, I'm going to build my whole kingdom through you. God gives him a promise that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So while Abraham didn't have a whole lot of external assurance along the way, here's what he did have. He had a deep internal assurance. Abraham was certain of what he did not see because God's promises were enough. God's promises were enough to sustain him. Now, here's the challenge for all of us as we apply this to ourselves. The weakness of our flesh yearns for external confirmation all along the way. And let me just say this. External confirmation is, is, not, is not a bad thing. We, God uses external confirmation along the way. But let me say this, that it's, it, it can be infallible. There's so many different things that have opened up to me circumstantially that I had the open door to go to, and I just sense by studying God's Word, which is infallible, that this isn't the direction we need to go. At times, the direction I felt like we needed to go was met with all kinds of obstacles, all kinds of barriers. We had to fight through. I mean, think about Paul. If Paul would have judged or designed all his mission trips According to the places where he was welcomed, he would have never left Jerusalem. (laughs) Everywhere he went, he was greeted with a beating. You have to admit that probably in that Philippian jail at times, there there were thoughts of, Lord, what in the world am I doing here? God's external confirmation is a gift for sure. But at the same time, what God is moving us towards is living off of his promises. Why would God do this? I think this. I think to cultivate a contentment, a contentment 
with God's promises alone. You know, external circumstances is like, you know, a, a great dessert, but God's word is what he's wanting us to, to live off of. You know, as I think back about this house, yeah, God eventually worked out some of these circumstances and worked out things with our house and, and, uh, and that kind of thing. But, you know, over and over again, as, I'm, as you're going through the middle of this, I, I've, I've been trained pretty well. It's like, okay, obviously maybe there's some sin in my life. I need to, I need to self-examine here. Maybe there's some things that God is it, he's doing this because I'm just holding on to some pride in my life. And so, man, I prayed through that, and, I, you know, and, and, and it's like I couldn't find anything. Surely there must be a reason here. And, uh, and, and then I'd run into some of uh, Job's friends, uh, and they would tell us, like, well, maybe you got some sin in your life. It's like, man, I've been praying through all the sin that I got. It's like, well, maybe you got some, you know, some, uh, like Aiken's family, maybe you have some things buried underneath your house, and that's why your house is caving in or something like that. And I was like, man, I don't think that's what's going on. Maybe there's an Indian burial ground under my house. That's what it feels more like. But I don't know that there's any, so So God certainly has to have a promise or certainly has to have some kind of purpose for all this, and here's what I think he was trying to teach me, is trying to teach me to be content in living off God's promises alone. Here's what he taught me. Brian, I know your circumstances are hard, but here's, here's what I want you to know. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Brian, you cling to that. And you get your nourishment from that every morning. That will sustain you. Brian, don't be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you make your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. You see, the biggest danger when we go through times like this is losing our heart. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He bookends it. He's like, but don't lose heart. And then he ends the chapter with don't lose heart. How do you keep from losing heart? You nurture your heart off the word of God. And God's promises become enough to sustain you. There's a second thing that I think we see here behind the tent and that is that he needed very little from this world abraham was a very wealthy man but you would never get the feeling that it meant a whole lot to him on the other hand you see lot his his nephew it seems like they're contrasted throughout the book of, of genesis remember when they get to the land and in their clans god is blessing both of their clans and they're getting big and and Abraham says, you know, we, we probably need to split up here. You choose the part that you want. And the scriptures kind of go out of the way to say that, that Lot's eyes surveyed the land and he chose what looked to be the best part. That's Lot. And Abraham, being the, the patriarch here and the, the older guy and the wealthy guy, he's like, you take whatever you want. I'll take what you don't choose. Eventually, we know what happens. Lot seems to be tied into these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God has to go in and save them and preserve them. He pulls them out. But what ends up happening to Lot's wife? As she's running out, God had told them, don't look back. But Lot's wife can't resist. Her heart has sent down roots in the world in these evil cities. And she looks back and she turns into a pillar of salt. 
There is great loss because Lot found so much of his rootedness in that part of the world. Abraham was a wealthy man, but he chose to live in a tent. He needed very little from this world. You know, sometimes we need to go on camping. You ever, I, I think there's a book out that, uh, you know, kind of along the lines, if you really want to have a good family, be a family that camps. Uh, I think it's a uh, family camps together, stays together. I think that's the name of the book. I remember, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Here's what camping does for you. And I, I'm, I'm not a big proponent for camping, but I, I'm, just, I'm, uh, I'm just giving that as an example. Here's what camping does for us, is it makes us realize how little we really need to have a good time and enjoy each other's company. I remember my family, uh, now my family didn't have a lot of money early on, and so whenever we would take trips, we would have big, grandiose ideas of what we could do for a trip. And so my parents come together, we've got this big Dodge Monaco station wagon. And uh, so it's like, you know what, we're going to turn our station wagon into a camper, and we're going to go across the whole United States for three weeks. And it's like, you know, as kids, we're just kind of like, just tell us when and where, we'll be there. And here's what we did. You're probably thinking, how in the world did you do this? There were, there were five of us. And so, you know, of course, this is back in the days when you didn't have to use seat belts and that kind of thing. So my parents were up front. The whole back part was just, you know, laid down. We junked all of our stuff into the very back of the, of the, the station wagon. And then me and my brother and sister just kind of sat in the middle with no seat, just kind of laid back, laid on each other and that kind of thing. And there we went across the United States. Now, we also planned on sleeping in this thing. And here's what we did. My mother put Velcro all around the inside of the car. She made drapes to cover all the windows. We had this big, long sheet of plywood that we put into the back. And at nighttime, we pulled it out, turned it sideways, and put it over the tire wells in the back. So I slept in the front seat. My parents slept long ways underneath this board, and my brother and sister slept over them. It's like, you talk about the Beverly Hillbillies going west. That's exactly what we were. And we did that for three weeks. It was amazing. Now, the one thing that we were missing, we, were need, we, we needed a marriage counselor for the trip. The kids had a great time, but mom and dad fought all the time. I just remember my mom was like, Walter, can't we just stay in a hotel one night? No, Linda, we set a budget. We're going to do it this way. You can see all this stuff coming out. But for children, it's like, this is the greatest trip of my lifetime. It was the most memorable time of my whole life. Abraham lived in a tent. It was just a reminder that we don't need much from this world. Listen to what A.W. Tozier has to say as he talks about this. Uh, this whole idea. He calls it the blessedness of possessing nothing. It's in his book, Pursuit of God. He said, I have said that Abraham possessed nothing, yet was not this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy. Sheep, camels, herds, and goods of every sort. He had also his wife and his friends. And best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything, but he possessed Nothing. There is the spiritual secret. There is the sweet theology of the heart which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. The books of systematic theology overlook this, but the wise will understand. After that bitter and blessed experience, I think he's talking about Isaac 
and, and being called, being tested to, to sacrifice Isaac. I think the words of my and mine never again had the same meaning for Abraham. The sense of possession, which they connote, was gone from his heart. Things had been cast out forever. They had now become external to the man. His inner heart was free from them. The world said, Abraham is rich. But the aged patriarch only smiled. He could not explain it, but he knew that he owned nothing, that his real treasures were inward and eternal. Isn't that beautiful? Let's apply some of this to ourselves. First of all, let me say this, that when we are least attached to the world, we make our greatest contribution to it. When we are least attached to this world, we make our greatest contribution to it. Since we've got March Madness going on, think about this. Think about the basketball player. When he's not attached to his own glory, he's able to make the best contribution to his team and be able to help them win the game. It's really hard to minister to and to reach a world around us when we're always trying to get something from it. The blessedness of possessing nothing. Here's a second one. When we are least attached to early, earthly things, we enjoy earthly things most. Let me say it again. When we are least attached to earthly things, we enjoy earthly things most. Now, obviously, I didn't get as, as big as I did by not eating. I love food. I love all kinds of food. I've never met a piece of food I didn't like. I go overseas, and I eat everything. It's crazy. I always end up getting sick, but I eat everything. I love food. But sometimes food becomes, for many of us, an idol. It becomes something that after we eat it, we feel shameful. We feel condemned. Why? Because our appetites are out of control. Here's, and, and it's not just with food. It's with cars. It's with houses. It's with possessions. It's with, it's with uh, uh, notoriety. It's with influence. It's with all the things that end up becoming idols in our lives. God gives us these things, but He intends for them to be gifts that point us back towards His goodness. And all of these things are simply hors d'oeuvres and appetizers for the life to come. The things that you're going to inherit. The problem is, is that God gives us these gifts, and we fall in love with the gifts. We begin worshiping the gifts. We become addicted to the gifts. But what we find with Abraham here is that these are good gifts from the Lord. We enjoy the gift, and we fall in love with God. That's the way he intends us to do it. We enjoy, I can sit down, I can eat a good meal, not feel guilty or shameful. I can just enjoy it because of what it is. It's an appetizer of things to come, and it points me towards the one who is the giver of all good gifts, the good and gracious Lord. Finally, a third one here is that when we are attached or too attached to something, we're in the greatest danger of losing it. Here's what I've found over the years. Whenever I come into life with things that, that God gives me and I'm holding on to these things with a clenched fist, God tends to do one of two things. Either He, he takes it away from me or he makes, it, he makes me miserable with it. And in some ways, I think that's exactly what He was doing with Isaac here. 
Isaac was the, was the promised son. And, 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 and there was a time, I would imagine, I don't know, that Abraham probably had temptations just like us. He had waited for so long. I mean, he was literally about 100 years old when Isaac comes along, and, and he finally comes along, and, 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 and lo and behold, I, I know he loved him. And, so, and God says, I want you to take him out, I want you to sacrifice him. What's going on here? We know that it was a test. But probably the question was, at some point, probably Isaac probably started to becoming, instead of just a gift and, and, and something that reflects back to the Lord, a possession in his own heart that rivals his own love with God. He needed very little from this world. And finally, I'm going to end on this. My time has, has come here. He anticipated something far greater. Abraham could have purchased real estate from the Canaanites, but instead, he chose to live in a tent. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and, big, and, and builder is God. He was looking for something far bigger, far more significant. He's thinking about his heavenly inheritance here. There's an eternal perspective that just emanates off the pages here as we, as we look at his faith here. You know, when I lived here, one of the, the habits that I did with my children often to try to build in their lives this eternal mindset was I would take them over here to Cape County Park. and the, We lived right over there close by it. We'd go over there to the lake, and then we'd walk up into the cemetery. And we would walk around, and, and some of you may have loved ones. I, I, I don't at all mean to be disrespectful or anything like that, but I, I would spend a lot of time over there in the cemetery uh, praying. That's where I would go. And, and, and something about being in a cemetery just brings a lot of perspective to your life. It, it reminds you that life is brief, that, that death is inevitable, and, and that eternity is forever. And, and I would take my kids around there when they were young, and we would read the epitaphs. And we would, we would talk about it. It's like, oh my goodness, wow, this, this family lost this child two days into its, its birth. And, and I wonder what they were feeling. I wonder what they were thinking. And, and we would just try to enter into what, what must have been going on in that family. And, and, but I would always walk away from there thinking, it's like, wow, everything in my life has got to be viewed through an eternal lens, much like what you see here with Abraham. I remember in my own story, when I was a child, I was just like most any other 17-year-old. I was pursuing basketball. I wanted to be a big basketball star and, and so on and so forth. I wanted to play college basketball. I go into the doctor one day and he tells me, Brian, you're going to have to have half your lung out and you'll never play basketball again. I was horrified. I was, I was frustrated. Ended up being in the hospital for 40 days. But here was the gift that I didn't view as a gift at the time, but here was the gift. God put me on the hall with 29 other kids. All of them had cystic fibrosis and leukemia. And my lung would eventually get better. I'd go out. My lung would uh, collapse. I'd have to come back. I'd make friends along the way. But two of my friends died during the course of that. And God used that literally to change my I remember laying in my bed at the hospital one day, crying my eyes out and looking at, at God's word. And, and I just remember reading Psalm 144.4. It says, man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And I remember thinking to myself, good grief, Lord, if I live to be 70 or 80 years old, 
My life is a mere breath on the line of eternity, and I've got to make all of my decisions in light of eternity. What does that mean? As we go through life, we've got to hold up the line of eternity and look at our possessions. It changes the way we view our afflictions. Paul said that when he had affliction, when he had suffering, when he held up the line of eternity, those hardships became just momentary, light afflictions. He anticipated something far greater. So, how do we apply this? Folks, there are over, there are thousands of promises in the Scripture. Memorize them. Meditate on them. What, what can you really expect as you go through life? I tell you what you can expect. What you can always count on is whatever God promises. You can never predict the circumstances in your life. You can't control them. But what you can always count on, and it may not always be in your timeline, you can count on God's promises to be fulfilled in your life. Secondly, I would encourage you to seek encouragement from those who have gone before you. Missionaries in particular. I was looking at Adoniram Judson, and I'll close on this, the missionary to Burma, which is Myanmar uh, now. But he lived for 38 years over there, laboring faithfully. He lost two wives and seven children. And then in the end, he died of a sickness on a boat. But God used him in a mighty way. But early on, even after 10 years, he only had 18 converts in one church. But you know what? As you begin to read these guys' biography, what was it that sustained their faith? They didn't need much from this life. They just kept on claiming and clinging to God's promises. And you know what? God's promises were enough to sustain them. They anticipated there's going to be something far greater. We have a heavenly inheritance, and it keeps us going, and it keeps our heart from failing. But I have to remind you, your heart is going to fail. But here's the good news of the gospel and what we're about to celebrate right here in communion. Is there is one who never fell prey to the temptation to quit. There is one whose internal assurance never got rooted in the world around them. There is one who never fell short because of discouragement or, or despair. And you know what? He made it all, to, all the way to the cross. And through the cross, all that he accomplished, he imputes it to us. So that his faith becomes our faith. His works become our works. It's all imputed to us. So when we come, we come many times limping. We nourish ourselves on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, help us to have a life of sustained faith. And Lord, help us to worship the one who persisted, who persevered all the way to the cross, endured the cross for our sakes, and offers his body up so that we might partake. Lord, sustain us in your atonement this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.